Time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. Good to see you. Uh, great to be seen. Uh, good to be here. Another uh, week of uh, nonstop legal action. Interesting uh, developments regarding British Columbia's distracted driving laws. Now, we had a segment earlier today where we were joined by Corporal Mike Halskov from the Integrated Road Safety Unit here in the Victoria area. And he had the following to say to Al Farabee regarding British Columbia's distracted driving laws. Uh, it's holding the device in a position it, in which it may be used, operating one or more of the device's functions, communicating orally by means of the device with another person or another device, and taking any other action that is set out in the regulations uh, by means of, with, or in relation to an electronic device. So that sounds fairly vague, but it's really pretty specific. Um, essentially, if, you're, if you have a Class 5 license, you can have a cell phone in your vehicle, provided it's sec secured to your dashboard by some type of holder, and any operation that you do with that device is to be one touch only. So to answer a call, for example, or to hang up a call, or in the case of uh, if you're looking for some music, it's uh, basically you can fast forward to the next song by one touch. If you start scrolling uh, through a list or screens or something like that, then that constitutes use and you'd be subject to a ticket in that case. Now, I think everyone's on the same page here that scrolling is prohibited, but you have some thoughts on whether the one-touch provision goes to skipping to the next song. Yes, and I think uh, this is simply an example of why this legislation and its associated regulations require relatively urgently some updating and clarification. Because what we have are uh, a piece of legislation and then regulations, rules made pursuant to that legislation, which were uh, implemented more than a decade ago. And things have moved on in the last uh, decade or so in terms of what devices are. Uh, and I think that may be the root of some of the misunderstanding and um, challenges that have developed around this legislation. I must say, I listened to that interview driving in today, and it was distracting because one of the pieces of advice there, I think, is not good advice. Um, the officer there, I think, was doing his very best to try and interpret what this confusing piece of legislation means. But I think his uh, advice in that regard uh, may be problematic, and problematic for this reason. The Motor Vehicle Act essentially prohibits, in the language he read out, the use of an electronic device. And that prohibition is extremely broad. It's uh, holding the device in a position which it may be used, even if you're not using it, operating it, communicating it, really broad provisions, virtually anything. And then there are some exceptions to that which are set out by regulation. There is a exception which permits the use of an electronic device by somebody who's not a Class 7, like N or L type driver, okay. right? you got your regular license, uh, for the purpose of hands-free telephone functions not other functions, okay? Those are separate. For the hands-free telephone function, if, you have, if you're not an N or an L driver, you would be permitted to use the device if it is securely affixed to the vehicle or your body. There's another interesting uh, provision there. But the one-touch exception relates only uh, to the initiating or accepting or ending a phone call in the telephone function. That regulatory exception, which is in Section 7 of the Motor Vehicle Act regulation, does not provide a one-touch exception for the purpose of changing songs. 
So it would be, in my judgment, um, not uh, a safe thing to do, both from a uh, driving perspective but, but also from a legal perspective, to be touching your device for the purpose of changing songs. That is not what that regulatory exception deals with. That regulatory exception deals with uh, the telephone function, answering or hanging up. Uh, that exception does not uh, extend to touching your device once to use it to change songs. It does not accept, uh, there's not a, a distinction between scrolling for songs and touching for songs. There is, in the regulation, a separate exception that deals with uh, what is described as a handheld audio player. And this likely comes from the, uh, the uh, you know, more than a decade ago, back in the days when you would have a, uh, a device which would only perform that function. Like I think what the was probably intended there was somebody had a, uh, you know, a pod. Uh, yeah, or an old CD player. Remember those? Yeah. And you'd have the tape adapter and you'd plug them in. That's right. exactly there it what is, I'm right? You know, yeah. Or maybe like a handheld eight-track device yeah. or something, right? So, <laughs> um, and there is a separate exception dealing with handheld audio players. And for handheld audio players, the exception requires that the device not be held in your hand. You can't hold the 8-track or, uh, you know, MP3 player or whatever it might be in your hand. Uh, it has to be securely fixed to the vehicle or worn securely. So that's an interesting thing. Uh, in a way that doesn't obstruct the person's view out of the vehicle or otherwise interfere with its safe operation. And the sound has to be coming out of the speakers of the motor vehicle. So... When you look at that exception, it doesn't specify one touch, two touches, scrolling, or anything else, but it only deals with handheld an handheld audio player. So by my read, you could touch that handheld audio player all you wanted, right? As long as it's a handheld audio player, the confusion is going to come with a modern device that now what do you do with, of course, your smartphone, which takes videos, makes phone calls, sends messages, plays music, and you know lulls you to sleep at night. What is that? Is that a handheld audio player or is that something else? Do you look at the mode the thing's in? But the point is that the one-touch exception has absolutely nothing to do with selecting songs. Either your device is a handheld audio player, and in which case, as long as it's securely affixed to the vehicle uh, or worn securely on your body and not interfering and not held in your hand, there's no limit to how many times you can touch it. But if it is uh -huh. not a handheld audio player... Uh, then that exception doesn't apply, uh, and the one-touch provision is only for the purpose of uh, the hands-free telephone function of the device. So I'm concerned uh, that the advice given out about, uh, well, you can touch that thing once to skip to the next song, is only good advice uh, if the device, whatever it might be in the modern world, uh, is found to be a, quote, handheld audio player, close quote, and not something else. So you can't just take any device and touch it once and be in the clear. Uh, the one-touch exception, again, has to be for the purpose of the hands-free telephone function only for initiating, accepting, or ending a call, not for doing other things. Uh, and so this is, I think, just why this legislation needs to be updated and clarified. It's not good enough to just... Uh, uh, leave it to every officer and every driver yeah. and have tickets handed out and hope that somehow this will get sorted out in court. Because, again, that's not really a court's function. The court will do its very best to interpret you know, what the legislation was intended to, to cover, what's its purpose, what's the meaning of all this language. But 
what needs to happen here is we need to drag this legislation yeah. out of 2009 yeah. into yeah. 2020 yeah. Uh, and get it focused back on safety and not leave it in a state where people are going to be a complete, uh, completely unable to know uh, what they're permitted to do and not do. Other interesting things in here, by the way, there are exceptions that exempt um, anyone driving an ambulance, a peace officer, uh, or personnel who are defined under the Fire Services Act, Fire Services Personnel. The Fire Services Personnel, interestingly, exception, um, and those other ones, uh, they don't necessarily specify that the device that the person might be using in their hand must be for the purpose of acting as a firefighter, an ambulance driver, or a police officer, uh, as long as the person is carrying out their duties or functions. So when you read the legislation... You could have, if you were a uh, ambulance driver, the person might be driving down the road texting away. It could be very dangerous, uh, but there'd be real uh, issues there about whether this legislation captures them at all. Um, so we have these broad exceptions for police, ambulance, and fire, which I think might need to be looked at. Other things have to be dragged into uh, 2020 and uh, provide some clarity for people because these things have consequences. It's not just the fine what happens is if somebody gets two of these things, they will be prohibited from driving. Mm. And for many people, that's going to be a serious impediment on their ability to work. Um, and so this just has to get clarified. I'm thinking here, I'm wondering if there's been any novel defenses yet saying that at the material time, the device being accessed was a handheld audio player, not a phone. While it is capable of serving both functions, at the moment it was a handheld audio player and therefore exempted under the legislation. I wonder if anybody's tried that. Yeah, that would, I think, be not unreasonable. I mean, the the concept when uh, there's statutory interpretation uh, is that the judge should be reading the thing in its sort of whole, fulsome manner and trying to sort out what the... Uh, meaning of this, what the intended meaning of this was. Um, and so, you know, there, there, I think there would be a reasonable argument that a purposeful interpretation of what a handheld audio player would relate to what is that thing doing at the relevant time, yeah. lest, for example, your handheld audio player also have a small digital clock on it, and then you would say, well, look, it could also be a clock, therefore it's not a handheld audio player. That would seem a bizarre conclusion. Uh, so it would seem to me that would be a reasonable, purposeful interpretation of it. But the point is, it's very much ambiguous, yeah. and telling everyone you can just touch it once, I think, is perhaps uh, unsafe advice. Understood. Let's take a quick break. Legally Speaking continues after this. Legally Speaking continues on CFAX 1070. We will, in just a few moments, address the matter of religious freedoms, a recent B.C. Supreme Court case involving a demonstration of a smudging ceremony in the Port Alberni area. But first, in the context of the 737 flight from Tehran to Kiev, Michael Mulligan, you have some thoughts there. Yeah, that I must say it's a complete uh, tragedy, the number of people involved and the number of Canadians uh, involved in that. Um, and it brought to mind uh, for me as well from a, a legal perspective, I think something people should be aware of in terms of what happens if there's this sort of a tragedy on an airplane um, affecting uh, loved ones uh, and through how that uh, is dealt with from a legal perspective. Um, and there are a couple of international treaties I think people should be generally aware of that uh, address the issue of liability for airlines uh, where somebody uh, dies or is injured uh, on a flight. And they are international treaties that deal with, interestingly, international flights, not domestic ones. So there's a different uh, approach to those. Those conventions, there was originally a convention called the Warsaw Convention. Uh, and then uh, more recently, back in 1999, there was another convention referred to as the Montreal Convention. 
and the concept behind those conventions, which have been implemented in Canada, uh, pursuant to an act called the Carriage by Air Act, are to limit the liability uh, of airlines uh, to pay compensation to uh, family members uh, where somebody is uh, tragically killed uh, in a uh, uh, in an accident, uh, and uh, those. Uh, provisions uh, or those treaties I think were entered into with the idea of trying to standardize these things and provide some certainty for airlines in terms of what their liability would be uh, and uh, would have started back with that Warsaw Convention one I suppose when air travel was still new and probably much higher risk of people uh, dying or being injured in flights Uh, and so to promote international uh, travel in the international airline uh, industry. Uh, countries got together and limited the amount of compensation that family members might be entitled to. Um, that was modified by that Montreal Convention, which Canada has uh, implemented. Uh, and what that means is that uh, if you have a uh, family member who uh, is uh, killed in an uh, f- uh, international flight, uh, if uh, the, the limit on compensation uh, is uh, set out in that uh, treaty and now act, uh, and is defined as a number of 125,000, actually now, special drawing rights. What's that? Well, a uh, special drawing right is a uh, defined as a value uh, of a compilation of international currencies, and it amounts to about $170,000. Um, and so what that act does is it limits uh, compensation to that amount. Um, it does allow claims to be brought... Uh, uh, in a jurisdiction where uh, the claimant would ordinarily be resident, which may be of some benefit uh, here, because I'm sure good luck to you trying to bring a claim in Iran. I was going to say ordinarily resident is itself a term of art, is yeah. it not? It's not. It doesn't actually just mean ordinarily resident. There is specific meaning there. Yeah, so okay. I think the general idea would be that a family member who lives in Canada would be able to bring a claim here. Okay. Uh, interestingly, and, and no doubt uh, adding to uh, all of this, however, is the fact that Iran is not a signatory to the Montreal Convention. Uh, they are still acting under that Warsaw Convention. However, the Ukraine is. Uh, and so there may be some interesting uh, sort of uh, conflict of law issues there. Uh, but uh, the, the takeaway for people, I think, is that they should be aware when they're on an international flight uh, that there are uh, limits uh, placed on the amount of compensation that somebody might be entitled to. Uh, and that could be uh, seriously meaningful, particularly if you had a, a family member who was killed, um, who was responsible for the support of others. Like if you had, a, a let's say, a single parent or a, uh, uh, both parents who were killed in a, a, a inter- on an international flight who had responsibility for uh, supporting their uh, child or children, you can easily imagine how over a very long period of time uh, those costs could easily exceed the $170,000 limit uh, that's placed on claims. Um, So, um, you know, everyone is uh, sort of mourning the the tragic loss and and these things will be sorted out in in good time, Uh, but uh, we need to make sure that uh, all of the people affected by that uh, tragedy and the family members left behind um, are uh, properly taken care of 
because these statutory limits uh, may, in some cases, uh, prevent that from happening. Indeed, liability might become very complicated very fast, depending on the uh, veracity of various news reports that have suggested it may have been a Russian-made Iranian-fired missile that brought down that plane. We have not had official confirmation of that yet. Newsweek reported earlier this morning, Prime Minister of Canada Justin Trudeau expected to deliver remarks uh, presently, actually, within the next 10 minutes or so. So we may get that. But thank you for that uh, that interpretation. I had a chance to speak with Dr. Judith Sayers, president of the New Channel Tribal Council, earlier this hour, herself also a lawyer by training, about this case, Michael, in Port Alberni, about the demonstration of a religion, or excuse me, of a smudging ceremony. And I didn't realize this until getting into the conversation. It seems to be material on whether or not this was an actual ceremony or a demonstration of a ceremony, and that played into it. Yeah, one of the other things which played into this decision involved what exactly happened. Uh, and in many of these sort of test cases, the, the underlying factual background isn't the controversy. Uh, there's a legal controversy, but what does that mean or is that permissible or not? Here, when you read the decision, uh, there were some interesting and important uh, factual findings that the judge made. Um, and they included things like, for example, uh, the uh, children uh, of the uh, person who brought this complaint, and they were relatively uh, young children, I think they were seven and nine, if I've got that right, provided some evidence about what they claimed happened. Uh, and the children's evidence uh, included uh, evidence about uh, claiming that they were forced to remain, or one of them forced to remain in the classroom, asked to leave and not permitted to leave. That evidence was rejected uh, by the judge. Uh, one of the uh, children also uh, provided evidence that uh, this ceremony, the smudging ceremony, was produced uh, th smoke so thick that they had difficulty seeing in the classroom, and uh, that was rejected, again, by the judge as just not being what happened. Well, I find that to be impossible, given what I know of it. But, yeah, and uh, then the other evidence from the child included, the uh, judge said expressly, I reject the evidence of the petitioner's daughter about the elder smudging her backpack or her desk. So she made claims that these, this involved her in particular and not just something going on in the classroom generally. And that was, I think, those factual findings played into the judge's decision here. Uh, one of the examples the judge used was, uh, you know, the difference between, for example, taking somebody to see a mosque or taking the kids to see a, a church or you know, whatever the, the school might uh, do. Uh, and uh, contrasting that with, for example, forcing the child to get down on a mat and pray would be a different thing from saying, look, we're going to have a demonstration here of different religious practices. That is a different thing from saying you must engage in the religious practice. Uh, and so those factual findings, I think, will be important. Um, and, well, we've heard talk about the, uh, the mother who brought this uh, claim saying, well, I'm going to appeal this. Uh, one of the things to bear in mind uh, where there's an appeal um, is that with some very narrow exceptions, uh, the findings of fact that arrived at by a trial judge are not likely to be interfered with on the appeal, right? Like an appeal court might uh, you have a different legal interpretation or assess whether the judge applied the right test, uh, this sort of thing. Uh, but uh, in accepted very narrow circumstances on an appeal, uh, the court of appeal is not going to interfere with the judge's fact finding. And so those particular sort of facts may have... A very significant influence on how this thing plays out at the end of the day, because as you can imagine, 
if this was, no, I forced you to remain in the classroom and I forced you to actually participate in Yeah, and the, I smudged your backpack yes. and all this other stuff. That could have produced a very different finding if Correct. that fact pattern had been confirmed. So that's, right. I think, really important to remember. Another uh, piece of uh, factual background that I think we should all bear in mind, and I remember this from my school days, um, it used to be, and this was a requirement under the School Act in British Columbia, um, all the way up to a decision in 1989, the School Act of British Columbia required that public schools be opened by a reciting of a passage of Scripture followed by a recital of the Lord's Prayer. So when you showed up in, you know, 1970s or 1980s at school, it would be, you're going to get a Bible passage and everyone's going to say the Lord's Prayer before we get going. Um, that uh, was eventually uh, struck down uh, by the, uh, uh, in British Columbia in 1989. Uh, as a, uh, a violation of the charter. But it wasn't very long ago uh, that that's how we were conducting ourselves. So I think we ought to have a little bit of uh, historical perspective uh, when we're analyzing, you know, what is the impact of somebody showing up and doing a dance in the gymnasium or doing some demonstration or something. It wasn't very long ago uh, that we actually legislated and required uh, sort of the dominant religious view to be... Uh, uh, used to indoctrinate our uh, children in public schools. So we've moved a long way in a short while, uh, and uh, I do think the facts of these things do very much matter. It's interesting. I'm just looking at paragraph 77 of the decision here. We've got a couple of minutes left, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is expected to be speaking momentarily. It says the petitioner submits that state sponsorship of one religious tradition amounts to discrimination against all other such traditions. There can be no hierarchy if quality and freedom are to be maintained. Court then writes, state's duty of religious neutrality precludes state sponsorship of any religion, and it cannot justify its breach of neutrality by appealing to the fact that it is propagating a religious belief that was formerly suppressed. It looks like the uh, affirmative action argument, but used for religion, would not be valid, if my interpretation of that is correct. Yes, I, I think you're correct. Um, and mm -hmm. what the judge was discussing there was this concept uh, that uh, Section uh, uh, 2A infringement uh, can be shown if it's demonstrated uh, that the state has not engaged in what's referred to as state neutrality, uh, which is a concept uh, that um, sort of is an expression of secularism. Um, you ought not to have the uh, state uh, sort of uh, advocating for one religion or another. We ought not to yeah. have the school act mandating uh, the Lord's Prayer be said uh, in the morning, for example. You could also have a breach uh, if you could show that the activity... Um, hindered somebody's uh, sort of religious practices. Um, but uh, again, it's very important what the facts were of the thing. Um, this wasn't a circumstance where they were requiring the children to say prayers or requiring them to engage in uh, some practice or ceremony. Uh, this was simply a, uh, as the judge found on the facts here, uh, demonstration so that they could see these things, and that very much matters. Michael Mulligan, thank you so much for your knowledge and your insight. It's greatly appreciated. Thank uh, you. Until next week.